Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And before I introduce today's podcast, I want to remind you that there are only a few days left in Arrowid.org's pledge drive. And while the matching funds still last, all donations between $10 and $500 are going to be matched by a major donor. So uh, if you can, surf on over to the best source of drug information on the web, or anywhere else for that matter, and that's Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D dot org. Now, for today's podcast, I'll begin by saying, no, I didn't mistype the title of this program. While in my humorous ways, I could actually say that the interview that we are about to listen to is about the war on drugs, I could say that only if you place the emphasis to the word on, because this is about the ways in which wars have always been fought on drugs. When I was serving in Vietnam, the use of amphetamines by our pilots was, well, it was more or less an open secret that we discussed often in the officers' clubs in Westpac. And I'd already known about the use of meth in World War II, but to tell the truth, I'd never really thought about it very much. However, after listening to the interview that I'm about to play, I'm really now much more interested in the subject than I ever was before. And I can't help but thinking about how clever the screwheads in Washington have been in changing our focus to thinking that drugs are the enemy in a war when drugs have, in fact, widely been used by our troops from almost every nation throughout history. On top of that, you are going to learn that, in the event you didn't already realize this, that back in the 17th and 18th centuries, when this nation was first getting on its feet, that a significant number of citizens, both in the U.S. and in Europe, spent an inordinate amount of their waking hours drunk, or at least half drunk. And don't buy into that Nancy Reagan bullshit about drugs and alcohol, because alcohol is a drug. Isn't it amazing how those propagandists on Madison Avenue can trick us into believing that booze is something other than a very dangerous drug? Anyway, I'm now going to turn the program over to Lex Pelger, who is speaking with, well, <laughs> maybe you could say it's three people rolled up into one. John Dolan, who is also known as the war nerd, and who is also known as the writer Gary Brecher. Now, here's Lex. This is a non-nonsense production. If you like what you hear and want to help us make the Salon 2.0 bigger and better, sign up to support this work monthly on patreon.com. As a two-person production, any help goes a long way. Join us at patreon.com slash nonsense. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is a Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today is a special interview with the renowned voice behind the Radio War Nerd podcast. John Dolan, a.k.a. Gary Brecher, a.k.a. The War Nerd, is the kind of guy who devours technical manuals about shoulder-launched rockets. 
And in interest to us, over the years of his work, he also collected an impressive knowledge of the relationship between human warfare and psychoactive drugs. John Dolan is a true researcher who even wrote his own translation of the Iliad, which will be coming out soon. I know that I'm quite excited to get my copy of that, but until then, you can follow him on Twitter, listen to his excellent podcast, or support his work on Patreon at Radio War Nerd. Now here's John Dolan on drugs and war. Hello, everybody, and I'm very pleased to be here today with John Dolan, a.k.a. A Gary Brecher, a.k.a. Radio Award Nerd. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And actually, maybe just to start, to explain your background with Radio Award Nerd and your various uh, uh, pseudonyms and heteronyms. Okay. Yeah. But I, on my birth certificate, it says John Dolan, and that's what I usually go by. Uh, but uh, I was a, a professor uh, in New Zealand, even though I'm originally from California, uh, until around the millennium when um, I moved to Moscow to work with this scurrilous English language newspaper called The Exile, uh, which was run by a friend of mine, Mark Ames. And Mark and I and a few other people were the staff of the newspaper, but we wrote under probably 20 different names. So all of us had several personalities. Uh, and after 9-11, suddenly all these mainstream media people who had had total contempt for military matters, uh, didn't know a thing and didn't want to know a thing about it, started writing all these articles on war because uh, suddenly America was in a warlike mood. And the thing is, uh, I was the real thing in, in that I spent a completely – isolated, wretched, clinically depressed youth reading every page of every volume of Jane's book of shoulder-fired missiles, Jane's book of attack aircraft, Jane's book of anti-ship missiles, everything like that. And every week, literally, I would wait in tremendous anxiety uh, for them to put the new issue of Aviation Week and space technology inside the plastic covers at the public library because that was the highlight of my week, which gives you a great idea of what my youth was like. And uh, I, I knew all these weapons they were talking about. I knew all the strategies and the tactics, and I couldn't believe that these idiots were suddenly pretending to be experts when they hadn't paid their dues and so I said not, uh, something complaining about this to Mark Ames, who said, you should an article, just, I don't know, not even pretend to be like some tough guy. Just And within five minutes, we had the character of the war nerd, who was supposedly uh, an angry, fat data processor in Fresno named Gary Brecher. Um, it wasn't really that much of a stretch from my real self, but, you know, it was nice to be able to write hardcore California uh, hick English, which was the language I sort of grew up speaking instead of having to talk like an academic all the time. Uh, so that's a glorious birth. And it, and it just exploded from there into a, 
Um, yeah. Oh, it became by far the most popular character on the newspaper. I mean, uh, and people used to argue about who Gary Brecher really was, whether there really was a Gary Brecher. And my favorite comment of all time was when someone suggested it might be that John Dolan guy posing as Gary Brecher. And an angry war nerd fan went back. Gary Brecher has more talent in his little finger than John Dolan does in his whole family. <laughs> oh, that's great. God bless the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, and I encourage everyone. It's a great podcast in all these different ways. But our interest here is in drugs. And I was wondering when I even first contacted you, you about this, if there was any particular uh, drug and war intersection that popped in your mind as one of the most intriguing. Well, I, I think – for me, uh, Eastern Front in World War II and amphetamines, because I'm unlike most war buffs or whatever you call them, um, I'm not terribly fond of World War II. I think it was an abomination. It was a war in which every side specialized in killing civilians in the greatest numbers they could. Uh, but it is amazing to me that something like Stalingrad could have happened because I've lived through three Russian winters. And I just can't imagine anybody fighting in uh, in the ruins uh, for any length of time. And there was real heroism there, but there was also an awful lot of amphetamines being peddled by both sides. So I think that, that one case in which it became very easy to understand how something like Stalingrad could have happened. If I mean, the, the Russian slang term for amphetamines is vint. Uh, the Russian and the the Wehrmacht was using something called pervitin, uh, and they were both being distributed in huge amounts. So I think that was that was key moment. Uh, you can read about uh, amphetamines on the Eastern Front in, in almost every account. Uh, I mean, the, the Germans, in their way, got really quaint with the products. People don't understand this sort of kitschy, quaint side of of uh, Nazi culture, but they they had something called tankers chocolate and uh, pilots chocolate, and it was basically chocolate bars stuffed with amphetamines. Um, and that's that's a fairly recent development. A lot of the the drugs used in war are ancient, um, but this is something that was only synthesized from the Asian plant ephedra in 1887. So it's big impact on recent wars. Yeah. And before we get to the ancient ones, I'm more curious about the, the Russian attitude, because we hear a lot about the Nazis and meth and the, and the Allied bomber pilots and the kamikaze pilots. But what about the Russian attitude towards using uh, stimulants during the war? Um, there was widespread in, in the Soviet army. I mean, they, they uh, didn't supply it quite as gratuitously as the Germans or the Allies did, but that's because it was... Uh, a much poorer army, and the expectations of their soldiers were much lower. I mean, uh, for example, one of our colleagues on the exile, Yasha Levine, had a grandfather uh, whom he knew growing up, growing up in uh, who always wore a hat, and uh, he knew that his grandfather's head always got cold. But when he grew up, he got the full story, which was his father had been in a penal battalion in the Soviet army, uh, and of course. Life was harder for the penal battalions than even for regular Soviet troops. So uh, even for regular troops, there was no anesthetic, but especially for a penal battalion casualty. So his grandfather was hit in the head with a big piece of shrapnel, uh, and they strapped him down on a table and chipped out a big piece of his skull 
And there was no anesthetic within a thousand miles except vodka. Um, vodka was in, in good supply for most of the war. Um, so there wasn't as much speed, but there wasn't as much anything in the Soviet army. And what there was did tend to get to the soldiers at the front. There's a, a great Italian novel called The Sergeant in the Snow about uh, an Italian soldier who was uh, recruited for the Eastern Front. And he has to rec- retreat uh, across a thousand miles of snow and frozen plain. And uh, in that army, amphetamines are, are fairly closely restricted. So that he doesn't get any until his uh, lieutenant sees that he's about to fall into the snow. Because if you fall into the snow, you'll never get up. So at that point, he said, here, take pills. And the guy is enabled to go on. Um, so they, they varied. I mean, every army used amphetamines. Uh, the Japanese army, for example, was extremely fond of amphetamines and, and Japanese chemists along with central European had a big role in synthesizing, uh, first benzedrine and then dexedrine, uh, from the ephedra plant, um, which was originally Chinese. You find it mentioned in Chinese books, you know, as uh, Ma Huang, I think, though I can't do the tones. Uh, and everyone knew this plant had a sort of uh, stimulant effect, but it was actually a Romanian chemist at the end of the 19th century who managed to start distilling the speedy part of it and changing war forever, basically making soldiers who could uh, stay awake for 48 hours, which is not so easy to do. And easier to do things that are atrocious. Yes, although that's a a really interesting point, and it's one I'm not sure about at all. I mean, I've read way too much about very dirty wars, Rwanda, for example. I don't think anybody was on speed in Rwanda. Uh, I think we have to face what humans are like in large groups in certain situations and it's just pretty ugly i mean if if you deal with drugs in uh the american context you know the tendency of everybody to blame the drug for every horrible thing that people do but the thing is people do horrible things without drugs too uh we're we're just kind of a grim species that that's an excellent point and dark and sad and true um, to going back to ancient history where we have some drugs like opium and wine that might be more helpful for keeping people out of, you know, a regular state. Um, do you have any, uh, favorite examples from ancient warfare of drug use? Well, there, there are a lot of different drugs that were used in the ancient world. Uh, some still used, uh, certainly forms of cannabis were very common, uh, and for me, because I'm not very fond of cannabis, uh, I, I'm actually afraid of cannabis. Um, I, I don't quite see it as a war drug, uh, but many people uh, have used it as such. I mean, I, I've even read about gangs in uh, mid-20th century New York warfare smoking a, a ton of pot before they go into a, a gang fight, and I'm thinking – that would be weird to be in a gang fight while you were stoned. But, you know, I, uh, it's a lot of this is the belief in the ritual. Uh, like, I've drunk 
a ton of coffee before job interview I ever had. It was probably a really bad move, and I sort of half knew that because I'm already fairly hyped up and nervous, and a ton of coffee is probably not the right thing. But the culture told me that coffee is a way of fortifying yourself, like wearing a tie, like polishing your shoes before you go into that sort of civilian combat situation of a job interview. So I always ended up taking coffee, and I always ended up talking way too much to get the job. Yeah, the the belief systems, I mean, during the Reefer Madness, there's reports of, you know, uh, southern boys who want to go out for fighting on Friday nights, and they said this weed makes you go crazy and fight and kill your parents, so you smoke it. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, and it's tricky, but to some extent, um, whatever you expect the drug to do will happen. Although, I, I've been around druggies a lot, and I also know that... Um, some drugs just do what they do, whether you think they will or not. Uh, like if you buy something and it's supposed to be speed and it's not speed, you're going to know it's not speed. Uh, you're not going to believe in it just out of some placebo effect. And like um, I'm not a psychedelic specialist, but the, the times I've used acid, uh, the first thing that struck me was uh, I'm not seeing things that aren't actually there. I'm seeing enhanced patterns in the things that are there so that when somebody says – oh, wow, I saw little men coming up out of my coffee cup. It's like, yeah, no, you didn't. Um, you're just making that up. Um, and there's some great videos from the, both the British and American armies of soldiers being ordered to do things after they're given LSD or some other psychedelic and just, you know, laughing, giggling, going up a tree. On, <laughs> on the flip side, yeah. um, my buddy Zychik said, I've never seen the reference, that uh, Khan – uh, uh, Herman Khan, he came up with the secret bombing patterns for Cambodia on an acid trip. It gave him the visual power to realize exactly what he wanted to do there, and acid opened that up for him. I've, I've heard that from a lot of people, especially in mathematics. It seems to work better for people in the hard sciences than it does for, you know, writer types like me. Um, I, I've heard a lot of physicists uh, say privately that they found it um, to be very effective and very powerful. All I can say is it doesn't work on prose. <laughs> I mean, there's there's always Philip K. Dick, who, of course, is one of my heroes. But uh, I think Philip K. Dick was more of a speed guy. I mean, he at least said that, you know, he, uh, he, he didn't use acid to write with very much. But I, I think he probably used it uh, to break through uh, – and then use the speed to finish the book. And, and often in his books, you can see the effect. He has this brilliant concept, and for 100 pages, he writes it down brilliantly, and then you can just feel the energy draining away, and it ends with a kind of uh, torpor, as if he'd simply run out of uh, neurotransmitters, which he probably literally had. Yeah, it is intriguing to see the, the writer associate with their drug. You know, Freud's work kind of has that same mark of cocaine on it, where it's just, okay, you could have said this yes. quicker. Apparently, Ayn Rand as well. Yes. Yes. And, well, Ayn Rand was a big uh, speed freak for prescription speed. Uh, and, yeah, it, it's a lot easier to write 900-page scolding novels if uh, you're full of prescription-quality amphetamines. Um, yeah, so they have that to answer for, uh, among other things. Um but uh, to, getting back to the to the ancient world, uh, the uh, for the Greeks and Romans, for the use of uh, opium and wine, and Marcus Aurelius being addicted to opium. I mean, how did it play out in those? I mean, how yeah. much do we know about how this 
played out on those ancient battlefields? Well, it depends on which ancient battlefield and, and how you're using um, the drug. I think alcohol was probably the most common and the most effective battle drug in the world. Uh, I mean, uh, the only drug that I've seen predisposed people to violence to quite the same extent was cocaine uh, and alcohol is, is much more universal. Cocaine didn't hit the world market until um, I don't know late 18th, early 20th centuries but alcohol has always been there and alcohol always makes young males want to fight and what you need is something that makes young males want to fight uh, one of the awkward truths about wars is that it's as difficult as we'd like to think to make young males hurt people. Um, they do that anyway. But if you really want to get everybody in the mood to hurt somebody, get them all very drunk. I mean, for example, there's that endless debate about what berserkers were, you know, like the Viking shock troops. Were Viking berserkers high on mushrooms or were they just drunk out of their minds? Uh, the most effectively violent people I know are drunks. I, I don't know any... I don't know any just to compare with them. Good point. And I was actually just about to ask about that one because there's that great line from the old Icelandic poet who said that the Viking berserkers would go mad as dogs or wolves, bit their shields, and were strong as bears or wild oxen. And maybe that was on Amanita's yeah. mushrooms, which is a fascinating idea. Yeah. Yeah, I I have not tried Amanita, and, but I have read about accounts of it in Eastern Siberia in the early 20th century, there's a really interesting book by this guy who ended up there for, it's a long story, but uh, he said the uh, people in Kamchatka loved the Amanita so much that they would trade a whole sleigh load of furs for one mushroom, but they didn't become violent. He said they became giggly and drunk. And it's probably because this was a small nomadic group, and they had no use for violence. Um, what what they wanted people to do was um, get giggly and funny and relax a little. So probably the group will determine to some extent what, what the drug would do. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and especially because Amanitas are they're technically classified as a deliriant, which puts them closer to something like PCP, which is another one that when – which can be a really lovely drug. I mean, used a lot in the 60s and 70s as like a pre-ketamine fun drug. You know, when you're in the mood to be very violent, PCP is an amazing drug for violence. You have this, this alcoholic uh, loss of control. You have this cocaine-fueled speed, and then you're, you know, out of reality as well with the dissociation. And it's the other one that can just, you know, make people be able to break out of the back of cop cars. Yeah, I remember, I remember that in, in Terminator. There was that line, ah, he was probably on speed. And, and we all know, no, he, he was a Terminator. That's why he was able to bash up your cop car. Uh, sorry, he was on PCP. Rather. I've never taken it because, you know, it's weird which drugs people are scared of it at particular times and places. In California, when I was doing drugs, and naturally I got into it at the wrong time, just at the beginning of the Reagan years, um, People, people were scared of PCP. Um, it, you were, you were going over a line if you, if you did PCP. I don't know if there was any basis for it, but you know, the, at the same time, heroin was sort of over the line at that time, and then that changed in 1990, and heroin was very much a part of cool culture from then on. But until that point, 
people were frightened of it. And if you if you go back to the hippie culture, which I sort of lived through but wasn't part of, uh, they also had this loathing for the opiates. Um, they considered them to be death drugs somehow. Uh, but they were pretty much okay with everything else. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't tried PCP because because of this taboo, but actually that sounds kind of nice. Um, yeah, uh, Hamilton Morris uh, likes to point out in the 70s, there were more busts of uh, PCP manufacturers than there were LSD by far. I mean, people were taking it, and they were enjoying it. Um, yeah. I haven't tried it myself either, but, you know, got to try everything once. Um, yeah, well, I, I actually liked I mean, one thing that, that I, I have done pretty consistently is try to follow – Hunter Thompson's example, because I lived through the worst of the Reagan years, and uh, I was living in Berkeley, California, and for me at least, it was almost impossible to get drugs. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why I'm alive. (laughs) But at the same time, it, it made things very awkward, and I saw people deny things that I'd seen them enjoy, and I saw them condemn things that I'd seen them enjoy, and I even, to my horror, saw people like William Burroughs making anti-drug statements. And the only person who didn't do that was Hunter S. Thompson. And I always try to speak up. I've had many great moments, and I've produced some of my favorite things on drugs. Amen. And actually, you would be a perfect person to ask about the, the, uh, the age-old cry, the hashishin and their use of hashish. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. I mean, yeah, uh, nobody is really sure how much a role drugs played in that. I would suspect not a very major role. I think this was an early example of uh, anti-drug propaganda in the context of a major sectarian war. The Hashashin were a sect of Shia Islam, and it should be easy for people to understand that because we're living through a major war between Sunni and Shia in the Islamic world right now. And this was also a time of Sunni-Shia sectarian violence. The difference was the the Shia were based in places like Egypt, which are now no longer Shia. Uh, uh, The Hashashin were uh, in northern Iran. Iran was not yet Shia. That came later. So they were holed up in these impregnable castles in the mountains, um, and they could not overcome the huge armies of the Sunni caliph through any kind of conventional military strategy. So they resorted to assassination as a military strategy, and they were very good at it. Uh, One of the reasons they were good at it is that they somehow managed to indoctrinate young men to be willing to die in order to kill their targets. One of the ways that the Sunni majority, because the Sunni outnumbered the Shia then, just as they do now. One of the ways they explained that was, oh, they must be on drugs. It's remarkably contemporary sounding. You know, it, they they must have given them some drug which addled their minds, and that's why one of these young men was able to walk up to the court of some Sunni monarch, smiling and making courtly conversation, and then stab him in the heart, knowing that he would be tortured to death afterwards. But the more I've researched about them, and I've tried to read what I can about uh, the Hashashin, uh, drugs seem to have played a very minor role. This was a religious war, and to some extent, 
a local war, what we'd now call an ethnic war. And uh, you don't make people willing to become suicide troops just through drugs. Uh, the U.S. was handing out, for example, a lot of amphetamines uh, during the Vietnam War, but if that was all it took, you could have just stuffed the South Vietnamese army full of amphetamines and they would have become the Waffen-SS in a couple of days. It doesn't happen that way. Um, these assassins of the Hashashin were committed Shia martyrs, and Shia culture like, say, Irish culture, values martyrdom uh, very highly. And that tradition was already in place. It didn't take drugs to make them do these things. Yeah, but they could be enhancing along the way. Yeah, well, supposedly this, I, I'm not sure people know this, but the legend was, the legend that the Sunni majority pumped out about these crazy hashashin is that uh, they're leader, who was this sinister old man, kind of a pusher, let's say, uh, would put them to sleep with one drug, and this drug would put them in a, some kind of psychedelic state, and without their knowledge, they'd be carried into this garden uh, where everything was green and growing and water flowed, and there were beautiful young women, uh, and he would say, here, you now are in paradise. As soon as you go kill that emir <laughs> been giving us trouble, you're going to spend eternity in this paradise. And it's like, okay, wow, yeah. Uh, and you can see the same propaganda at work right now about uh, suicide fighters who are now Sunni, by a weird irony, um, like people talking about how these Islamic State guys wouldn't do it if they didn't believe they were going to get 72 virgins in uh, paradise. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure how many of them actually believe it. Many of them have very little background in Islamic faith. Many of them are just full of male adolescent uh, rage and a desire to make their mark by hurting people. And, you know, I went to a really lousy public high school in um, California, not even what would be considered a very rough high school. But to me, when explaining why young males do this kind of thing, it is really useful to remember ninth grade PE, as we called it, um, gym class, whatever. Uh, I can see those guys doing that in a second, and you wouldn't have them high on drugs. They were, they were full of hate and rage already. Um, on, the, on the potentially helpful side, I just learned for the first time that during the British Thirty Years' War, uh, it sounds like alcohol was being used. They call it Dutch courage for PTSD to kind of help ease people out of the horror of that war so they wouldn't have as much uh, trauma later on down the road. Uh, well, okay, the British didn't play much role in the Thirty Years' War, although Prince Rupert, for example, fought in the Thirty Years' War. The, the British Civil War followed immediately on the Thirty Years' War, so I, I'm not sure which war. But in general, um, the, every war has left huge scars on the people who fought it. Uh, not so much because they didn't enjoy it at the time. I think a lot of them did. But uh, because it was there was no way to adjust from that mode of consciousness to a civilian one. So there's there have always been uh, 
huge drug use. I mean, part of this is, is contextual. How much alcohol did the average European consume in the 17th century? The amount is insane. I mean, like, uh, those people were drunk most of the time. I mean, the, the way I came to this is reading uh, about colonial America and hearing about it from Mark Ames, who was researching a book uh, on rage murders in American history. And he said when he went back and looked at the history of colonial America, he could not believe it. Like, everybody... Uh, we had a whisk rebellion, right? An actual war fought in part, and in part that was a propaganda term, whiskey rebellion, invented by Alexander Hamilton. But in part it was because on the frontier, you grew crops. If you just left them around, they'd rot. The only way you could save the value of your crops was by distilling them into corn liquor, into whiskey. Um, and then that when the federal government tried to tax them, a lot of people were willing to go to war. It also meant that there was an endless supply of really strong liquor around all the time. Uh, and that was just standard European culture. Um, in Britain, it came when the switch with the switch from ale to gin to, you know, distilled liquor. And uh, this is the early 18th century. There's a famous series of etchings about the, the horrendous effect of, of gin. It was like it was supposedly like crack cocaine supposedly was in America in the 1980s. Um, and distilled liquors were the norm. I mean, people would gouge each other's eyes out. Brothers would stab each other. Uh, it was a very violence-inducing drug, and that was just part of the culture that was accepted. So, But to get back to your question about cures, it also meant that especially for the defeated, uh, being drunk for the remainder of your life was probably that you dealt with your war experience, and not just drunk. It's only come out recently that a huge number of Confederate soldiers and officers after the Civil War became complete morphine and uh, various opiate addicts. That was how they dealt with their defeat. Um, they just stayed uh, floating as long as they could and as often as they could. And one of the uses of opiates is to take away that kind of pain, emotional as well as physical pain. Yeah, and the, the American Civil War was the first war to have very widespread morphine use, uh, correct? Yeah. Yeah, as far as I know, yeah. Yeah, but there's there've always been yeah, they were just creating better distillates, but there there had always been opium available. I mean, it it's not hard to make opium. You just uh, you know, cut the pod and collect the sap, and that that's opium. Uh and it's quite effective. You can eat it, you can smoke it, you can drink it mixed with uh alcohol, which would be called laudanum and that was around uh at least by the beginning of the 19th century because it was around in time to um give samuel T taylor coleridge some good ideas for poems and but also probably shorten his career which which is sort of typical you know drugs give and they take away and that's how it yeah. works and it does seem that way with the american civil war too i mean the i mean the numbers that they estimate of addicts coming out of that war is huge but i've been seeing some stuff lately where they're starting to question those numbers as being as gigantic as they were laid out well yeah it's i mean have you known any 
opiate users. I, you know, I know a lot of opiate users, and I know few addicts. I can think of two people who actually became addicts, and both of them are still alive, and neither one is an addict now. So part of it is terminology. You know, who qualifies as an addict? I've known a lot of weekend opiate users, and I'm sure there were a lot of people who were the equivalent of weekend users in, in that group as well. So it, it all depends on, on how you classify them. And so to move up a little bit more in history, I didn't realize that World War I was often known as a tobacco war for the amount of cigarettes people smoked. Okay. Yeah. I don't know much about tobacco because I've never smoked it, but I don't understand what good it would do to you. Um, you're you're smoking and you're smoking and I guess there's some kind of high. I don't know. But there are some great tobacco stories from the First World War. Like if you know uh, the writer Saki, who wrote some really fantastic short stories and was sort of the direct ancestor of P.G. Woodhouse, uh, he died because he was a lieutenant and it was forbidden to smoke while you were on sentry duty because you made a perfect target for snipers. And he came up to a sentry who was smoking and said, put out that bloody cigar and got about that far before he got shot in the head. So, yeah, they were all smoking. Um, I suspect a lot of them were using other drugs as well. It would have been too soon for the amphetamines, but also in a trench war, what would you do with the amphetamines? It's kind of interesting to speculate about the relation between the kind of war you're doing and the kind of drug you're using. The Eastern Front of World War II, where there was all that amphetamine, that was a very mobile war. The Western Front in World War I, basically, you just had to sit there underground in the mud and the rain and the lice and the filth day after day after day. You wouldn't want to be on speed. You'd want to be drunk or on opiates if possible. Yeah. Um, though I, I did find out while researching for this that apparently my people, the Dutch, um, they were selling pure cocaine from Java to both sides in the fight. Wow. Wow. There was cocaine in Java. I didn't know they I brought cocaine I, to yeah, Java. I just read that uh, today. Uh, apparently in the British forces, it was called forced march tablets. Uh, they eventually banned it in uh, 1916 in the Defense of the Realm Act. But uh, you know the Dutch, the the Dutch were dealing to both sides of the conflict. Wow, I always think of that as a South American product, but I suppose yeah, you could. The, the one thing that the empires, British, Dutch, French, were very good at doing is uh, passing useful plants around from one part of the tropics to another. So it makes sense that it brought it to Java. Yeah, um, and speaking of the tropics, um, one of the last big pieces of this puzzle. Uh, Vietnam, the first pharmacological war. Yeah, I've heard it called that. I don't know what people mean by that. Uh, they're all pharmacological wars. I mean, uh, uh, every war has, has a particular inflection to its pharmacology. But yeah, uh, that to me is of American exceptionalism. <laughs> it's like, no, it wasn't. Like, for one thing, our guys were using amphetamines all over the place in World War II. So how, how is it the first pharmacological war? Uh, and all the other drugs are much older than that, have been in constant use. And um, I don't know, every war has its own cool or not cool or horrendous or interesting anyway drug variants. Like uh, if, if you know uh, Ishmael Bea's memoir of being a child soldier in Sierra Leone, 
he uh, talks about a drug I'd never heard of before, which they'd called Brown Brown, which is a mix of cocaine and gunpowder, which when you think about it is a perfect war drug. The gunpowder doesn't do anything pharmacologically, but it, it probably reinforces your belief that you're a really fierce soldier. And then the cocaine j- just keeps you up, you know, and keeps you willing to kill people. You feed that to a bunch of 13-year-old boys and, you know, it's no wonder things get yeah. awful I, in a hurry. I actually hurry. have a, a quote from him right here um, from Ismail Abay's book. And he said, after several doses of these drugs, all I felt was numbness to everything and so much energy that I couldn't sleep for weeks. Yes. We watched war movies at night, Rambo's First Blood, First Blood Part 2. Yeah, and couldn't wait to implement Rambo's techniques. Yes. One thing you find uh, in all contemporary African irregular war is huge influence of pop culture, mostly American pop culture. Um, people always choose names from vi- names from characters in violent movies. Sometimes the gangs that they fight for are even named after uh, somebody from a movie or uh, named after the the movie itself. And uh, that always goes along with uh, some kind of stimulant because Bayard describes what's clearly a longer lasting speed in pill form as well as this uh, cocaine gunpowder mixture. So, you know, that's a pharmacological war, too. And Vietnam was a pharmacological war in, in a slightly different sense, but it wasn't the first one, not by a long shot. Uh, and I, I know you're familiar with the work of uh, Lucas Kamiensky, who did that book, Shooting Up, and he's, he's written a good article for The Atlantic about the Vietnam War. But he, he does kind of overemphasize the newness of all this. Um, and a lot of it new. He says people were... The LERPs, who were like the elite long-range um, scouts, sort of scout assassin troops uh, of the American forces there, would carry uh, a packet which included dexedrine, a powerful prescription amphetamine, Darvon, a not-so-powerful prescription opiate, uh, and I, I can't recall, some some other form of opiate as well. So uh, basically, they had the ability to stay up when they wanted and go down when they wanted. Um, most serious druggies that I've known talk in those terms. You know, you, are you going up or are you going down? Uh, and as he says, you know, this came at terrible cost in their later lives. But the terrible cost tends to come when you've been in a war. Uh, it, it, it's not from the pharmacology so much. I'm not convinced of that. Um, it's it's more the adjustment from uh, one consciousness to another. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it was a hugely pharmacological war, uh, but so were a lot of others. So so were many of them. I think what Americans mean when they say that about Vietnam is they're talking about corruption and they're associating the Vietnam War with the corruption of their society. Uh, whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know. I don't really think so. Uh, the corruption came from us sources. And for example, there, uh, in the 1980s, when Reagan was waging war on drugs, supposedly, his intelligence people were also importing huge amounts of cocaine in order to fund their uh, counter-revolutionary forces, the Contras in Nicaragua. I would call that a, a very serious form of corruption, but they they don't see that 
as corruption because that we won that war essentially you know the revolutionary movement was crushed uh therefore it's it's not a corruption story vietnam is a corruption story because to put it bluntly we lost I, I guess the the reason he called it that uh, for the Vietnam was more because the quantity of drugs taken, uh, and and that you also had psychedelics uh, in the mix, you know, modern psychedelics for the first time, right? And the idea that ten to fifteen percent of American soldiers were addicted to heroin, and if you read the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia by McCoy, you start to realize how much the CIA was either directly implicit in the trade or protecting Thai uh, warlords. And, uh, and and chemists that were turning this into heroin and getting it onto American streets and the corrosiveness that money had on our own intelligence service. Yeah, that's that's true. But the strange thing for me, and I find this in every war I research, is that we tend to whitewash the British Empire in, in an extraordinary way. And... Uh, we're talking about a really minor echo of the opium wars here. I mean, th- this is an unprecedented episode in history. Two huge wars against the, the biggest country in the world in order to force them to accept delivery of massive amounts of opium produced in British India. And this was a global effort in the mid-19th century. First, huge tracts of farmland in in northern India mostly, were converted from raising food crops to raising opium. Then that opium was shipped to China, and then the British and the French, their running dogs as usual in that period, fought a major war against the Qing dynasty, which was attempting to stop them from importing these huge amounts of opium. And the reason they needed to import opium is that there was no balance of payment with China. China was this remarkably self-caned and and in many ways kind of arrogant culture, which didn't see that it needed anything the outside world had to offer. But the outside world needed their tea and needed their textiles and needed all these other products. So there was no balance of payment, and the British Empire was not going to stand for that. So they needed to introduce a product that would – produce its own need and voila an addictive drug perfect so the harm this did to china has not begun to be calculated uh i've seen all kinds of wild estimates of the number of opium addicts in early 20th century china but it was a matter of course for middle-class Chinese people to be addicted to opium. You read early 20th century travelers' accounts of China, and the population is declining everywhere. Whole districts of cities are abandoned. Uh, the few people there are completely lethargic, have no energy. Everyone is an opium addict. And this was not an accident. And it was not because Chinese people are weak-willed, which I don't think anyone ever said about Chinese people anyway. I think uh, people need to recognize this was one of the major wars of the 19th century, and it was fought explicitly, not secretly or quasi-secretly like the CIA's war, but openly and explicitly to make uh, addicts out of the world's biggest nation. Are there any modern conflicts where you feel some kind of similarity to the British opium wars? 
in in the sense that they are designed to open up markets, you could call an awful lot of modern wars uh, similar to that. Uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, even though it wasn't a military matter to everyone's surprise, everyone thought that would have to end with massive bloodshed, but it didn't. And yet it meant massive markets opened up uh, and were instantly exploited. Um, there's a lot of that kind of war. Uh, and you can you can feel the pressure to produce more markets, to produce more needs, yeah. But I'm, I'm trying to think if there's one that was explicitly about getting people addicted to a particular drug. And no, the, the U.S. example you mentioned is – is one of the main ways in which, you know, the U.S. is so horrible at empire compared to the British because it, the analogy would be is if the British tried to get the British people addicted to opium, they, they didn't. They inflicted that on somebody else. But the American intelligence agencies decided to inflict it on their own people. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awful to read the, the history yeah. of, the, of the CIA and drugs. Yeah, and it just gets worse, and we don't even know that much, really. So much of it no. is burned by uh, Helms. Well, and and there's the uh, uh, the journalist Gary Webb, uh, my my partner in Radio Warner, Mark Ames, has done a lot of research in what happened to Gary Webb. He was basically the person who broke the story about the CIA's uh, horrendous trade in uh, cocaine in order to fund the uh, militias they were using in Nicaragua. Gary Webb was smeared mercilessly in the mainstream press, uh, couldn't get a job, was driven to suicide eventually. And then when the pressure was off, when the war was won and nobody cared that much anymore, they sort of admit, yeah, we did that. Yeah, the the book to read is uh, Dark Alliance, for anybody yeah. who wants to see about that terribleness. And some, I heard one uh, researcher once say, yeah, that he uh, – committed suicide by one to the back of the head? <laughs> I don't know. That could be true. I, I, I don't know. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. I was a failed American career seeker myself, and uh, I wasn't that far from it. I, I don't think they'd have to do any of that spy movie stuff to you. I think uh, it's not hard to, to uh, convince somebody they're worthless. Yeah. Well, I just want to – I just had one more question I want to ask before I let you go back to the New Zealand uh, days – but uh, modafinil in the U.S. military, it seems to be their new wakefulness drug. Do you hear much about that? Oh, well, I tried that. Um, I had high hopes of it simply because it was legal. Every time I try something because it's legal, I get either disappointed or just terrified out of my mind. That was my experience most recently with salvia. It's like, oh, salvia divinorin, huh? Oh, it's legal. Right, okay. Five minutes later, I'm out on the porch screaming. Um, anyway, I, yeah, I don't trust these legal drugs. Uh, if it's any good, it's probably going to be illegal. But um, I have tried modafinil, and uh, it's a very boring drug. Uh, it's it's not even like speed. It, it's wakeful, yes, but uh, it's almost like it was invented by an office manager. Um, all the wakeful with none of the euphoria, and uh, I can see why why it's it's popular with some very puritanical hierarchies like like those of the u.s military but i i don't see it's anything that people would you know pay money on the street to buy um so i guess just do you have any final comments you'd like to talk about about the the past or the future 
use of drugs in war? Well, we haven't got – I mean there, there's so much here. Basically, everybody will use anything they've got uh, and it is – you can't blame what they use for the wars because uh, we do these things and we're not as good as we'd like. But we will use anything we've got to make them more fun, if that's not too crude a thing to say, or, or easier. Um, we haven't really dealt with some of the stranger uh, drugs like ibogaine, which I've, I've, I've heard used as a cure for opiate addiction, and apparently it, people say it works for that, but it's also used as a hunting drug. And it, it seems like it would make a perfect sniper's drug, because in West Africa, where it was used for centuries, it was primarily because often a hunter has to stay in place at an ambush site for a long time until the prey animal comes by. And ibogaine apparently allowed you just to stand immobile for hours on end uh, without uh, moving or, or feeling any need to itch your nose or whatever. I can see that as a, a perfect sniper drug. Um, I, you were talking about uh, Alex Zychik. I mentioned when we interviewed him uh, that ayahuasca, uh, uh, the Amazonian drug, makes you hyper aware of all your surroundings. I, I would never have thought so. I, I would have thought you, you know, I, I've seen too many of these drugs like these these nice safe organics that make you puke your guts up and all that. But but he said it uh, it produced this hyper awareness. And it was probably also a hunting drug. And it's very easy to imagine all these hunting drugs being converted to small combat drugs, sniper drugs. Yeah, it does make sense because at the low doses, you do kind of feel those effects. I think you get the same thing with mushrooms. Uh, Terrence McKenna always suggested that they were so helpful to early humans because they made you a better hunter. But I haven't heard about them you know, being used for human-on-human uh, -human conflict. No, maybe because the, the hunt haven't done very well in recent conflict. I mean uh, somebody once wrote a great sentence about um, – basically destroying the myth of uh, Indo-European racial superiority was something like, you know why the Indo-Europeans won a lot of their wars? Because they were good at growing barley. And you can produce 10 warriors with a good barley crop. They don't have to be Achilles. And if you've got 10 warriors and the nomads have one warrior, you're going to win. So I, I, the hunter groups haven't really done too well in, in modern war. Yeah, the, it, these webs with drugs and war do go on and on. Um... And uh, I, I want to thank you for sharing so much. It's really an impressive array of knowledge, especially because drugs aren't your first specialty. It's war. And how much you know about drugs is uh, pretty, pretty magnificent. Well, God knows I try. But I tell you, it's all theory. Uh, my, my, my real feeling about drugs, uh, th there was a story Abraham Lincoln used to tell about uh, some child uh, in in the backwoods, and this distinguished visitor comes up and pats the child on the head and says, "Why, hello, young fellow. Do you like gingerbread?" And and the kid thinks about it for a while and squints up at the guy and says, "I don't suppose nobody likes it more nor gets less of it." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should leave it on that. Can't okay. You can't can't lose on a Lincoln anecdote. No. Okay. All right. Well, John Dolan, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us and and keep up the great work on your podcast. 
My pleasure. Thanks. Before I let you go, I have to share one of the best stories I've ever heard about drugs and warfare. I initially heard about this from Cannabis and the Soma Solution, Chris Bennett's book on the history of cannabis and religion, which is one of the best researched things on that I've ever seen, probably the best. And he found something in the Indian Hemp Drugs Commission report, which was an incredible 10 volumes put together by the British about 100 years ago, and still one of the best things on the everyday use of cannabis ever done. And so they detail a story about the use of bong among the Sikhs. And bong is a drink where they pound cannabis into a milk-type product or water, and they drink it. It's a sacred draught. It's also a draught that you can use during warfare, and they were some of the best warriors ever to come out of the subcontinent. And so at one of the great battles between the legendary 10th guru of the Sikh religion, Gobind Singh, the founder of the Sikh religion, he was battling some of the local rajas, and the rajas sent a trained elephant who was, had a sword for slaying its enemies and breaking open the gates of forts. And you can imagine in the 16th century the tank-like power of an elephant with a sword that could break down giant walls. And so from here I'll quote from the Indian Hemp Commission report. The guru gave one of his followers... Bachatar Singh, some bong and a little opium to eat, and directed him to face the said elephant. This brave man obeyed the word of command of his leader and attacked the elephant, who was intoxicated, and had achieved victory in several battles before, with the result that the animal was overpowered and the hill rajas defeated. The use of bong, therefore, is a necessary sacred draught. It is customary among the Sikhs generally to drink bong, so the guru Gobind Singh himself has said in the following poem in praise of bong, Give me, O Saki, Butler, a cup of green color, bong, as it is required by me at the time of battle. And so there is that wonderful story, if you can imagine it. A drunk, rampaging elephant with the sword, and as legend goes, a... Sikh warrior with a little bit of opium and a lot of hashish in his system who goes with a sword up underneath this elephant and opens up its guts underneath and killing an elephant, which is one of the hardest things to do anyway. And so there is one of the classic stories of drugs and warfare that I've ever heard in all of my research. So it's not beautiful, but it is amazing. Thanks for listening to the Sakel Excellent 2.0. To help us out, you can leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast service or share an episode with a friend. It really does make a difference. And to follow along with everything else we're working on, check out patreon.com slash nonsense.